After one of our services last Sunday, I think the nine o'clock, one of our members lingered in the aisle back there under the windows, and when I came by, she told me what she was thinking about. She had a request. She wondered if we could consider raising just one, maybe two, of the opaque shades on the sanctuary's south side so those who might wish it could, theoretically, bask in direct sunlight during the service. She suggested that we try designated, designating, sun willing, of course, a shade-free zone, something like a fragrance-free zone or, or the touch-free zone we once kidded about setting aside for those who wished our rituals of giving and receiving did not include giving and receiving viruses through hand-to-hand contact. <laughs> the woman said, I don't want to discomfort anyone or displace them from from their favorite pew, but perhaps there are others like me whose hearts sink each time the shades are lowered as we make our way through this cold and cloudy winter. Today we raised shades on the south side and the north side for the sake of experiment uh, in honor of those who might want theoretically to absorb the sunlight along with the message and music of worship. We are ready. And for those who, like the poet in Calgary, 2 a.m., are longing for a burst of summer, however brief, in spite of the fact that it's 20 below and winter has gone on for five long months, in spite of being starved almost to death for greenness and warmth, flowers and birds, in spite of shopping centers, television shows, pains, guilt, failure to meet obligations, in spite of all these things, the poet tells us, there is the blue moonlight, There are children, friends, a gentle spouse, an occasional poetic inspiration. In spite of the fact that it's 20 below, he says, tonight I smile, summer bursts inside me. This week at church, I gathered with some others for a meeting, and as always, we started with a check-in. We went one at a time around the circle, to share a word about how we were doing before we took up the business of the day. This was a group of skilled and competent people, not at all given to self-pity, not a victim in the room. But first one and then another mentioned that they have come to the point that they are finished with winter, whether or not winter is finished with them. The gray and cold is wearing on them, and some days, if you add in all the other things, life is asking of them right now. Some days it's like hefting heavy weights up a steep incline with no green in sight. They said this not to get sympathy, but just to report their situation. It's hard in February to be starved for greenness and warmth and to keep plugging, keep getting up in the morning and doing what needs to be done. And so we went around our circle One and then another listened, nodded, added their own riff or echo. And caring for each other as we did, we could sense in our bodies our neighbor's effort. And soon, surprisingly, we found tears welling up in our eyes. It may not have been a burst of summer, but it was a a whisper of spring, the tiniest thaw a little glimpse of that new green that sprouts along the lilac twig. So together we took a pause, a pause of holy recognition 
and then went about our tasks with a gentler spirit. Our best selves, our best selves, it's a fertile phrase. Our interim minister, the Reverend Charlotte Cowton, used that phrase at our visioning workshop in early December. That was the Saturday when something like 150 of you generated so much of the rich, raw material that we're using to create a description of the church we wish to be. As we were brainstorming there in the large group that day, one of you said, this church is like our other home. This is our family. Charlotte, who was facilitating, said, hold on there. I beg to differ. Then she turned to the crowd and said with the characteristic gesture, who here comes from a functional family? (laughs) No hands went up. (laughs) She said something like this. Family is the place where we are free to bring our worst selves. Church is the place where we practice being our best selves. Practice being our best selves. Last week at our little check-in session, when people confessed their winter weariness, they were practicing being their best selves. They may have felt at the moment like their worst selves, like their worst colorless grungy selves complete with hat hair, but by sharing authentically, listening tenderly, gladly cutting each other and themselves some slack, going about their work with a sense of kinship, they were practicing being their best selves. They may even have been practicing realizing the self, capital S, that we share in common, that source of truth and life at the core of our being. To all who long and strive to realize the self, illumination comes to them in this very life. This divine awareness never leaves them, and they work unceasingly for the good of all. When the lamp of wisdom is lit within, their face shines, whether life brings weal or woe. Around here these last two or three weeks, in spite of five or ten below and going on four months of winter, I've seen many shining faces. I won't even try to describe the shining faces of the musicians and the crowd at the Valentine's dance last night. The light was blinding. I will mention the faces of our youth who led our worship service last Sunday, who spoke from this pulpit, who shared their deep and reasoned convictions about the importance of comprehensive sex education and who called us to action in a way that not only made us sit up straighter in the pews, but also inspired us to reach for our wallets and put another $2,300 in the plate for their project. (laughs) All our faces were shining. And it's not just the young who shine. Not long ago, I went to Fairview Ridges Hospital to visit Mary Dyer, who died a week ago at age 93. I mentioned her earlier. Many of you won't remember Mary. Her hearing was nearly gone. She stopped driving four or five years ago. She lived way out in Burnsville, and she simply lost interest in making the trip to church. She didn't want to be driven to church. She was a private person. We communicated by handwritten notes and a couple times a year I went to Burnsville to see her. 
She was a tiny woman with a sharp mind, and she wanted me to share my opinion of all the things she religiously read in our church newsletter, which I did in a loud voice. Mary once told me that she'd spent her whole working career, she never married, with the Minneapolis Public Library. In personnel was my understanding. But I didn't know till after she died last week and I was looking through a file of her papers that for some years she was associate director of the Minneapolis Public Library, then interim director, and that she launched projects like the Governor's Library and the Special Athenaeum Collection in the 70s. While she was associate to the library director, designated hitter, she called herself in her notes, there was a large component to her job which she described in her notes as the Hail Marys, the director of the library would, ask, would be asked to show up somewhere, take part in some civic project, and he'd say, Hell, Mary, I don't want to be involved in that. You go and I'll back you. Mary would find herself at City Hall with government officials and metro leaders, and often she'd be the only woman in the group. Once she overheard, overheard one man saying to another, Who's the skirt? Looks like a damned library type. When Mary was a little later introduced to the man, she said, and what damned type are you? <laughs> she said from then on they got along fine. <laughs> a couple weeks ago when I visited Mary at the hospital, she was there because of pneumonia. She was getting better for a while. She was such a small form on the bed, lying flat with a tube or two attached. I said, hello, Mary, it's Kate. She indicated I should speak into a little microphone gizmo that was lying on her blanket and wired to her ear. She said, Kate, it's good of you to come. I said, how are you doing, Mary? She said, are they going to let you go on sabbatical? She read the newsletter, <laughs> and she won't talk about herself. I said, yes, soon. Mary, I said, are you comfortable? She said, that Charlotte, do you like her? How's that Charlotte doing? I said, Charlotte's great. She's just what we need. Mary said, no need for you to stand. Isn't there a chair over there? It has always been impossible to be this woman's chaplain. <laughs> she steals all your best lines. We expected Mary to recover, but that was not to be. That day I visited her, I noticed how her face was shining. Her skin was radiant. This happens sometimes near the end of life. She was transparent to the light. Gratitude, I believe, was Mary's main mode. In her file, she had some notes about her memorial service. She wrote, The reason for a memorial service might be something like the departed guest sending a bread-and-butter letter to a generous host. The departed guest writes to express appreciation for a wonderful stay during her little wink of time on the hospitable earth and to thank family and friends and nature and the five senses for this wealth of experience. When the lamp of wisdom is lit within, their face shines, whether life brings weal or woe. I'm thinking, too, of a man in midlife who sat in my office recently and said he now sees that the time has come for him to begin to forgive himself and others for harrowing events that happened something like two decades ago. It's time to take this on, he said, because I want to serve the world with an open heart. 
And in order to do this, I need to clear out whatever gets in the way. This feels like the most courageous thing I've ever attempted, he said. When the lamp of wisdom is lit within, their face shines, whether life brings weal or woe. There's more. Last week I sat in the presence of a couple who had been lovingly married for 50 years. The husband, who for many years was a successful trial lawyer and the most articulate of men, now has great trouble communicating at all due to advancing tumors in his brain. He thinks and feels fully, but can barely find or say the word he wants. This couple came in to talk about their plan to start hospice for him and to begin to plan his memorial service, which may be many months out. I would ask him a question, and his face would light up with an answer. Then he would search for a word. He would look to his wife for help. She would lean in with complete respect and patience and guess at his meaning until they could get close enough or give up and take another tack. It was something to see their mutual, profound effort in the face of this challenge, to dignify and to cherish each moment they have. It was as if their love filled the room and there was little I could do but be a witness to their shining faces. Whether life brings weal or woe, health or hardship, and this in a cold, gray February. Finally, last Sunday, I talked with a young woman here at church. She spends her days at home with her young children, and while she enjoys this very much, the kids are growing fast, and she's beginning to ask herself, what will I do with my life? She says, I don't think this is just an employment question or a question for my therapist or a job coach. I think it's something else. It may be a spiritual question. I believe she's right. A spiritual question begins not with what shall I do, but with who am I? Or who do I believe I am? Or what do I believe about who I am? In December, I went to a Christmas concert at one of the evangelical megachurches in our suburbs. I went as the guest of some fine people who are members there. The church sanctuary holds 3,000, and that night it looked full. After an hour of grand Christmas music, with orchestra, a huge choir, soloists, dancers, all celebrating Christ, the newborn King, a pastor stood and reminded us what Christmas is all about. He told the story very simply. He said, Essentially, God the Father up in heaven looked down at the earth and saw the people were sinning and breaking his laws. He said to his son, those people deserve to be punished with hellfire unless you, son, go down and stand in for them. The son said, Father, I will go and take their place. So he does. He goes to earth and dies on the cross, sacrifices himself, takes the punishment the people deserve. He pays their debt and evens the score He goes back to heaven, and he's with his father. Father looks down to earth and says, Look, they're still messing up and misbehaving. And son says, Don't touch them. They're mine now. They belong to me. I bought them with my blood. Accept Jesus' gift was the message. Become one of those for whom he died. 
I said to myself, be calm. <laughs> this is not an emergency. Be calm. I turned slightly in my seat so I could see faces of the people in the congregation. In the dimmed light, there were hundreds of happy, healthy faces, adults, children, grandparents, teenagers. No one seemed disquieted by this message. No one looked at all nervous. If I embraced the worldview described in that story, how nervous I would be, how dependent I would be on Jesus and that one sacrifice, how compulsively I would want to check and recheck to make sure I was on the list of those bought with his blood, how eager I would be to see on that list the names of people I care about. But that worldview is not the one that was given to me. In my liberal Methodist Sunday school, the message was, Jesus loves all the little children, period. I grew up with a message closer to that of our universalist forebears, who saw the old story in a different light. More like this. God looks at the people on earth, and he sees how they're hurting each other and hurting themselves. God says they've forgotten who they are and who they're meant to be. What they need is a good example. They need to be, showed, to be shown what a God-filled human looks like. So Jesus appeared among us and lived with us and taught, but some people objected to his teachings and they killed him. This was an unfortunate outcome. However, for many... It was as if Jesus couldn't die. His presence and his purpose told them something about ultimate reality that they couldn't forget. He showed them what was possible, and somehow, somehow his life convinced them that love really is stronger than death. After he died, people still messed up and misbehaved, but now they had hope and a reference point. I ask you to forgive this caricatured crash course in the essence of our universalist heritage and our universalist message of love and hope. It is a caricature. It's the quickest of line drawings. But the truth is our people saw God, the mover of the universe, the spirit of life, as infinitely benevolent. And they saw Jesus not as God, but as guide. They saw Jesus not as God, but as godliness or goodness shining from a human face. In the words of the Reverend James Harvey Tuttle, minister of this congregation from 1866 to 1891, Jesus was not God, but God manifest in the flesh. That's different. The Reverend Tuttle went on, and this is his communion sermon of 130 years ago. We get nearest the infinite soul of music through the sweetest music sent to us through harp strings or piano keys or human voices. The strongest proof of divine goodness is the highest human goodness found on earth. It is the love of our friends, of our parents, of husband, wife, child, brother, sister, neighbor. If, then, music is revealed to us through the musician, 
poetry through the poet, love through the one who loves. Why should we question the help of Christ, whose purity and wisdom and nearness to God as well as nearness to humanity make it possible for him to reveal the highest spiritual truths to us? End of quote. Why shouldn't we want illumination to come to us in this very life? Our universalist heritage affirms that we are teachable. Spiritually, then, the question that has come down to us through the centuries and the question it all comes down to is whose heart needs to be changed? Whose heart needs to be changed? Is it an angry God's heart that needs to be changed? Or is it the human heart that needs to be changed? Our heritage has said that there is no cosmic anger aimed at us. Our universalist heritage, not unlike some Eastern faiths, has said that if any heart needs to be changed, it's the human heart. Choose your image. We live in a universe of light. We need to roll up the shades and let it shine in and through us. We exist in an ocean of love, We need to learn to float and to swim. Our heritage says that if any heart needs to be changed, it's ours, the human heart that needs to be awakened, shown, and recalled to its best self. That's why we need each other, for comfort, for counsel, for inspiration, and to simply be reminded. That's why we are together here today. That's why we are the church. These closing words are from a poet in our congregation who also stood as one of our pastoral care leaders, Mary Young, an excerpt from her poem called Swimming. At this community pool, I look through goggles, gold lenses foggy and spotted spotted with water, I watch one man teach another to swim. The student, over 40, looks vulnerable in his wet, near-nakedness, yet he appears bravely determined. I watch as the student begins swimming the length of the pool, slowly, laboriously. Here I want to applaud this man who beats back time, who beats back the voice telling him to give up, who denies the voice saying the water is too cold, who denies the voice saying he'll never learn. Seen through goggles, everything is sun burnished, the azure water, the deck, the dripping bodies. The swimmers are wavy. We are all blurry here, swimming together through these dark, moving waters. It's almost as if we're smiling and nodding to each other, almost as if we're saying, go ahead. Be born to whatever it is you've longed for, whatever it is you've wanted your whole long life. This is the work and the joy and the hope of our church. Amen.